Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you for your reality that comes to us in your word, and we pray that we may understand how you work in a messed up world where people kill, uh, betray one another, and are full of ambition. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Are you afraid of the future? Are you afraid of the future? I am because I think the future can be a very frightening thing. The future can be uncertain, whether it's good or bad, whether it's blessing or ill. Nobody knows. The future can be unknown. You don't know what's going to happen to you. It's a bit like walking into a pitch black room with no light. You don't know what's going to happen. The future is uncontrollable. In spite of what we want to do, our best efforts, we find that we can't control the future. So I remember reading about how there was an experiment done in the university overseas where uh, basically volunteers were asked to sit down and they were given a certain amount of time, I think it was 15 minutes or half an hour, where they would actually either be given an electric shock or they would be given something pleasant. And surprisingly, a, a great many of these volunteers chose to have the electric shock rather than to wait in the uncertain future of what they were going to get. So it was, it was preferable, more preferable for many of these people to get the electric shock rather than to have the uncertainty of not knowing what was going to happen. Now, does knowing God change our attitude to the future? Should being a Christian, should knowing Jesus Christ as our King, Lord and Saviour change our attitude to the future? Well, I think today's passage deals a lot with that. It begins in chapter 2, verse 1, where we find ourselves back to David. And it says that in the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? And the Lord said, Go up. And, Judah, and David asked, Where shall I go? And God said, To Hebron. Now, if you look at this map, we're going to be looking at a few maps today because I think that we need to get back into the original situation to understand what is happening here. It was Samuel chapter 1 verse... Uh, sorry, in 1 Samuel chapter 31, we saw that King Saul, his son Jonathan, including two of his other sons, and there was only one left, had all been killed on this mountain of Mount Mora. And his army had defe been defeated by the Philistines, and everyone was scattered. Now, this was not a surprise for us, because as we have been studying the book of 1 Samuel, as we read in a responsive reading, God had promised that David would inherit the kingdom, and the kingdom would be ta taken away from King Saul. So, if you look at this reference here, it all really began uh, way, way back in chapter 28, where even before the very battle began, Saul had gone to the prophet Samuel and Samuel had said to him, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands <clears throat> and given it to one of your neighbors, to, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Malachites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines, and tomorrow 
you and your sons will be with me, and the Lord will also hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines. So as we've been reading in 1 Samuel chapter 30, 31, and 2 Samuel, this happened just as God said. They went to battle, King Saul was killed, his sons were killed except for one. And now as we come to chapter 2, there is a power vacuum. Okay, the whole of the next slide. Oh, don't worry about that. We will skip that. Okay, uh, go to the next slide, the, uh, the map. So there's a power vacuum in the whole of the north. Now, David is in Ziklag. Okay, so he's down here in the south. And there is no king in Israel. And David is the promised king of the whole of Israel because the kingdom has been taken away from Saul. So David asked God, where shall I go? But God says a very surprising thing. Because God says, next slide, uh, the click, you've got to click the thing. Oh, Okay, next one I think. Yep. God says, uh, click again. <laughs> Sorry. God says, right, that he is to go to Hebron. Now, for, for those of us who understand uh, Israel and its geography, this is very surprising, right? Because if you look at the next slide, the big, the big picture, you see that David is just asked to go a few miles up to the north. But didn't God promise David the whole of Israel, the whole kingdom of Israel? He already said that he would take it away from King Saul and give it to David. And here... At this moment in time, David is the last surviving army of Israel. Right? The Israel, the, 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 the armies of Israel which were aligned to King Saul, they've all been defeated by the Philistines. There is a power vacuum, there is no king there. The whole of Israel is just waiting for David to march in and inherit the promises of God. But God said, just go to Hebron. Which is really strange because he could have gone up high and high to the north, and inherit the kingdom. But in the next section, something even more strange happens. Because if you look in verse 4 onwards, it says, But the men of Jude, then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of, of Judah. When David was told that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to them to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. Now, what is really Strange also is that when, when David goes to Hebron, the only tribe that announces him as king is the tribe of Judah. Okay, so the next slide. Okay, uh, okay, you got to click again, I think. Okay, so from Hebron, only in Judah, right, do they recognize him. And when he sends a messenger all the way to Jabesh Gilead, which is up in the north, they don't recognize him as king. They don't do anything. All they do is they receive his message and we don't hear from him again. But what is even more worrying is what we read about in verse 8 to 11. In verse 8 it says, Meanwhile, 
Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and had brought him over to Mehanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Asheri, and Jezreel, and over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was forty years old when he became king over Israel, and when he reigned, and he reigned two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. The length of time David was king over Hebron was sorry, over in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. Now, this is even more strange. You know why? Because in the north, next slide. Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army, consolidates his power in Israel and he gets the last remaining son of Saul and makes him king. Next slide. Uh, in Mehenim. Can you see Mehenim over there on the, on, the, on the right-hand side? And when he makes him king, the tribes of all of Israel, apart from Judah, give their allegiance to Ishbosheth. And what is really strange is, if you look at the next slide, okay, can you click it? It's as if Abner has been given the whole of the country, but David only controls the southern part. But what is really interesting is what is said at the end, isn't it? Next slide. Because it says that David was king over Judah for seven and a half years when Ishbosheth only ruled for two years. Now for most commentators, what that meant was while David was sitting in Hebron in the south, just listening to God, being obedient to God and trusting God, for five and a half years there was no king in the northern part of Israel. He could have seized power, he could have gone there with his army, but instead he stayed there and Abner took five and a half years to reconstitute the army in the north, to then politically connect with all the tribes and to then appoint Ishbosheth as the ruler. Now, this is very frustrating as a reader because you think if God is in control, if God knows what he's doing, then why doesn't he tell David just to go to Israel and to take power. Now, I'm not sure if uh, many of you watched this movie. Uh, next slide. Not movie, but the, the series. But I, actually, it's not a good series to watch because I, I hear there's a lot of sex and violence in it. But I would prefer if you read the book because the book is a lot better. And I've read the book. If, if, if David was a character in the Game of Thrones, you'd think that David wouldn't survive very long, right? Because in the Game of Thrones, the only way to survive in the world that we live in is to seize power and get rid of your enemies. Not sit around so that they can consolidate power and get more and more powerful and in the end become much more powerful to you because you know what happens when they become a lot more powerful than you? Well, this is what happens next, isn't it? In verse 11, uh, verse 14. Oh, sorry, in verse 12. Then Abner, son of Ner, together with the men of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, left Mehanaim and went to Gibeon. Joab, son of Zuriah, and David's men went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And one group sat down at one side of the pool and one group on the other side. So for those of you who are familiar with uh, 
Game of Thrones or even uh, for those of you who watch Chinese serials about the history of China and all the warlords, right? What happens is when you become very big and powerful, uh, inevitably, you want to get rid of all the small fries. Okay, so next slide. Uh, next one. Uh, don't worry about this. Uh, next guy. Uh, next click. Uh, eh? What happened to... Oh, I've skipped that part. Okay. Okay, don't worry. Okay, so what happens is, it seems as if that it's a terrible decision. It's a terrible decision because David has been obedient to God and has not gained him anything, but instead he has been disadvantaged. Now, when we read this passage, I'm not sure about you, but it's almost as if we are tempted to ask God, to ask him and say, you know, God, you're at the steering wheel, but you seem like you've lost your way. Like you're, you're on the driver's seat, but you don't seem to know what you're doing. And I think that there are many times where we, we feel this way. As we read this passage, we sort of ask ourselves, what on earth is God doing? He doesn't seem to know what he's doing. And I think that this situation can be mirrored in our own lives. Many times in our lives, we are obedient to God, but things don't work out. And we are tempted to ask God, God, do you really know what you're doing? You're on the driver's seat, but you don't seem to be driving in the right direction. You're, you're on the steering wheel, but you don't seem to be able to be going where we should be going. I don't know about you, but there have been many times where I had uh, seen people who are uh, ungodly, uh, wicked, sinful, and somehow they get ahead in life. And then for us as Christians, we do the right thing, we are obedient, and we don't get ahead in life, we seem to be punished instead. And those times to me are the hard times because I ask God, what, is, what are you doing? Right? What is the point of following you? But I want you to notice something very peculiar in this passage because David, in the seven and a half years while he's in Hebron, doesn't seem to question God, even though all these bad things seem to be happening and Abner seems to be growing stronger and stronger. So I want you to look at verse 6. Okay, verse 6. And verse 6 is up here, okay? Look at what David says when he sends messengers to Jebesh Gilead. He says, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. And he goes on to say, Now then be strong and brave, for Saul your master is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. Now, if you think about it, this is a very peculiar thing for David to say because, as we see in the map, the next slide, oh, the, the earlier map, sorry, reverse a bit. He's down here, and Jabesh Gilead is up in the north, and he's saying that he is going to bless Jabesh Gilead, even though he's only king in Judah. But the only way he can say that he is going to bless Jabesh Gilead is because he trusts in God fully that one day, one day in the future, he will be king over Jabesh Gilead. Do you see the faith of David? Do you see the trust of David? And I want you to pay attention because it's so different 
from what we read in King Saul. Because when we read of King Saul, King Saul is the opposite of King David. If you remember when we did a responsive reading, next slide. Remember when King Saul was first king, he was faced with a very crucial battle and God had told Saul to wait, to wait until the prophet Samuel came to sacrifice. And before they would sacrifice, then they would go after to war. But King Saul wouldn't wait for Samuel. He wouldn't wait on God. See, King Saul, different from David, took the wheel away from God. He took the driver's seat and he said, I'm going to sacrifice because I'm not going to wait for God and I'm not going to wait for the prophet Samuel. But look at what happened as a result. In verse 13, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If he had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure and the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. See, there is a difference between David's attitude and Saul's attitude. David trusts God and is willing to wait patiently, even though he doesn't know what's going to happen. Whereas there's a contrast because Saul, it seems, is unwilling to wait for God and he seizes control and takes the steering wheel from God. And I think that as we look at this section here, there is a bit of a lesson for us. Because even though it doesn't seem as if God knows what he's doing, God does know what he's doing. And I think that for ourselves, it shows us that our role is not to overthink things, but just to obey God, just like David did. To continue to trust God, because God knows what he's doing. Now, as we read on, we see that David's uh, decision to trust God seems to be, on the surface, a foolish one. Because like I said, when it comes to playing the game of thrones, when you are a big power, your role is to eat up the, the little powers. So next slide. So Abner is in Mehanaim. David is down south. Can you see the map? Abner brings his army to Gibeon. Now, bringing his army to Gibeon uh, is a bit like... Um, okay, I'm not sure whether I should use this illustration, but I, th I think I won't really get trouble with it. It's a bit like the army of uh, Malaysia coming down to Johor. Okay? So you all get the picture, what that really means, right? Okay, They're not coming down there for a holiday, but it's, 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 it's a threat, right? It's a threat. Now what Abner is doing, he's a political person. He is trying to play the great game of uh, brinkmanship. Uh, brinkmanship is where you threaten all-out war in the hope that... Uh, the enemy will say, okay, I, I don't want to risk war. Let's, let's, uh, let me give you some concessions. Let me, let me make some deals with you. Okay, so um, the word brinkmanship, if you look, next slide. Okay, so it's like risk. You know, in risk, you, you have all the territory, and you, you, you bring all your army down to where the enemy is, and you want to take them over. Well, this is exactly what is going to happen here. Okay, so next slide. 
Okay, don't worry about the Cuban missiles. It's a bit like, you know, you're trying to push everything to the brink of war, but actually, uh, you don't really want war. Now, we know that's what Abner's strategy. Because when he comes to Gibeon, he meets up with the army on the other side, but instead of going to war, what do they do? They sit beside the pool. Okay, not because they're going to have a, you know, a swimming competition, all right? But because now they're, you know, they're at impasse and they're going to decide what we're going to do. So Abner, he's a very political person. He proposes a challenge. He doesn't really want to have all-out war. He proposes a challenge like a duel. Like, you know, David and Goliath? That's the most famous duel in the, in, in the Bible, where instead of the two armies going to war, they have a champion, right? Goliath versus the champion of Israel, which is David. But here, instead of 1v1, they have 12v12, right? But unfortunately, as is often the case when you have brinkmanship, things spiral out of control. And instead of having a clear winner, everybody dies. And with everybody dying, it triggers an all-out battle. And as we see there in verse 17, it summarizes the outcome of the battle even before the battle begins. In verse 17 it says, The battle that day was very fierce, and Abner and the Israelites were defeated by David's men. Now this is very strange again. Why does the author tell us the end of the battle before the battle even begins? I think because, in the author's point of view, the battle has already been won because God is on David's side. In fact, when you read the end of the chapter, David's side wins by the score of 20 to 360. Okay, It's a very, very clear-cut victory. But the focus, the focus of the battle is on two people, Abner and Joab's brother, Asahel. Asahel is described as a very fast runner. He's as fleet-footed as a wild gazelle. Okay? Good, for, uh, good for the Rio Olympics. So he's chasing after Abner, the, the old warrior versus the young wannabe, right? They run over all the dead bodies. They run beside fighting men. They run up and down the hills. On and on they go. Abner says, turn to the left, turn to the right. You know, pick on someone your own skill. Pick on someone your own size. Right? But you know, with young people, he's very stubborn. He's got his eyes fixed on Abner. He's young, he's fast, he's athletic. But the problem is, Asherhel's speed, youth, and athleticism are no match for Abner's skill and cunning. And in one blow, he kills Asherhel. In, uh, you know, the Bible is never, never reluctant to tell us the gory details. Right? So you can sort of imagining Asherhel is running after Abner, and then Abner stops all of a sudden, and then he thrusts the back of his spear threw his thumb out, out the back, right? Okay? Now, why are we told this detail for? Why, 
Why do we need all this gory information? I think it's to show us that in this one blow, the war that uh, Abner started can only end in two ways. Either the death of Abner or the death of Joab and his line. And it's to sort of show that for all of Abner's cunning, his strategy, his military might, his his foreplanning, that actually it backfired on him. That actually the seeds of his defeat and downfall have already been sown right from the very beginning. And this is because God is actually in control and he's bringing all these things about. You see, you think about it, when Abner came to Gibeon, he had all the tribes behind him. David only had one. He would have a bigger army. He was more experienced than Joab. He had the territory. He had everything. But still, he's unable to succeed. Still, he's unable to win and stop the plan of God. But as we go on, we see that God works in even more mysterious ways because God, uh, God's ways are really strange to us. So let's jump ahead to chapter 3, verse 6. Now we know that the war is going against uh, Abner. By chapter 3, verse 6, I think it would have been very clear to Abner that the war was going against him. Okay, we are, we, We've seen that already. So during the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine named Rizpah, daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. So he answered, Am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David. Yet now you accuse me of an offense involving this woman. May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do, uh, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath, and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Bathsheba. Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. Now Saul is an ambitious man. In fact, uh, we can call him ambitious Abner. Okay? And we see here that actually Abner, as we have seen all along, we see his personality quite clearly. He's ambitious not for the family of Saul or for Ishbosheth, but he's ambitious for himself. And as part of his ambition, he slept with King Saul's concubine. Not because of love or not because he wanted to marry her, or even out of lust, but because of politics. You see, because when you sleep with the king's concubine, in a way you are asserting your right to the things of the king. Now, I know that's very gross and very you know, sexual and not very gender equal in today's world, but that's what happened in those days. right? If you sleep with the king's property, you are saying that the things of the king are mine. So obviously, Ishbosheth, the remaining son of Saul, challenges him. But Abner doesn't say sorry. Abner gets very angry. 
Um, have you ever had that happen to you before? I, I, I've noticed this happened to me before. You know, you tell somebody that they've done something wrong, but instead of being sorry or repentant, they get angry with you. Uh, I was sharing this the other day in my Bible study group, and they, uh, some parents said actually that happens a lot with your kids. Right? You know, you tell your kids that they're doing something wrong themselves, saying sorry, they get angry with you, you know, that, that, that you've told them that they've done something wrong. Well, Abner is like that. He, you know, he, he's done the wrong thing, he's caught red handed, his hand is in the cookie jar, and Ishbosheth says, Look, what are you doing? And he gets angry. And he, he does what is probably on his mind for a while already, because, you know, he's losing the battle, he knows the war is not going well, and he says, Look, look. I'm going to now give my allegiance to King David. And he couches it in very spiritual and theological language. Right? He says, oh, I'm going to give it to David. You know why? Because the Lord promised on oath to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne. Now, we learn a few things with uh, this quote, right? Because... Uh, Abner goes on to repeat this very quote in verse 17. Verse 17 says, Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, For some time you wanted to make David your king. Now do it. For the Lord promised David, By my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all the enemies. But Abner right, says things but doesn't mean it. When we read it, we understand what it means because we are Christians and we are loyal to God. We know that God has promised the kingdom to David. We know that God is at the steering wheel. He is the one who's pulling all the strings. But for Abner, all along, it's all about ambition and politics. We know that because he sends a messenger to David. And what does he say? The words are very important, right? What does he say to David in verse 12? He says, um, yep. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, whose land is it? Make an agreement with me and I will make, I will help you bring all Israel over to you. So when Abner asked the question, whose land is it? What is the answer in Abner's mind is Abner's land because I will bring the northern Israel to you. So let's make a deal. Right. So on one hand, Abner is saying God is the control. God is the one who controls all things. It's actually God's land and God will place David to be in charge of it. But on the other hand, what he's really thinking is I'm in control of the land. I'm going to cut a deal so that it works out well for me. So when we read this part, we see that God, in his own amazing way, uses the ambition of Abner, his cunning, his political skill, his ambition, to actually bring about what God had promised all along. See, God didn't need to send David all the way to Mehanaim and fight and to bring about his kingdom. He was already bringing it about through the ambition and the sinfulness and the wickedness of Abner. But Abner, in a sense, thinks that he is in control. He thinks that he controls his own destiny. But actually, he does not. 
Because even though David receives him, even though David is willing to accept his offer, in verse 24 and 27, we see that that fatal backward stab into Ashahel's stomach comes back and, uh, and well, I can't say bites him, but comes back and, and affects him back, isn't it? So look, let's look at verse 24. So Joab said to the king and said, Look, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now he is gone. You know Abner, son of Ner, he came to deceive you and observe your movements and find out everything you are doing. Joab then left David and sent messengers about after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern at Sirah. But David did not know it. Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Jacob, sorry, Joab took him aside into an inner chamber as if to speak with him privately, and there to avenge the blood of his brother Ashahel. Joab stabbed him in the stomach, and he died. Now, Job is a piece of work himself, and we will see this in the later chapters, right? Because Job himself is also a vengeful person and also an ambitious person. Part of the reason why Joab killed Abner, I don't think it was just out of revenge, but because he was threatened by Abner. You see, he's probably thinking, okay, there's only space for one commander in this army, right? And if Abner's bringing all these people from the north... Where, where am I going to be? You know, I'm going to lose my job. Or I'm going to be retrenched. I'm going to drive for Uber or something, right? Okay? So let me get rid of, um, let me get rid of uh, uh, my enemy now. Now, as we see, for all of Abner's ambition, scheming, bigger army, more tribes, political strategy, and military power, he could not stop God from fulfilling his promise that David would become king. I know it's a very long chapter and there's many more things to be said. And I'm sure in your Bible study you have picked it up as well. But I began by asking the question, does knowing God change our attitude to the future? Does knowing God, should knowing God, change our attitude to the future? Well, it must. Because knowing God means that we know the one who controls the future. He is at the steering wheel of the future. He is in the driver's seat. And he knows where the car is going. He knows where the direction is going. We may not see it. We may think that God is confused, you know, lost, whatever. But as we look at this passage, we see that all along, God knows what's going to happen. And he will fulfill his will and his promises. And our role is not to take the driver's seat from God or take the steering wheel, but just obey God. Listen to God and trust God because God knows what He is doing. I remember many years ago, I spent a day evangelizing on the campus of university and we had nothing to show for it. We spoke to people, nobody became a Christian, nobody wanted to come and find out more about Jesus. And I remember saying to someone, you know, this is kind of like a waste of time. But that person rebuked me and said, actually, it's not a waste of time. Our job is just to obey God. For all you know, it might be God's plan for us that the person we spoke to may become a Christian next year or the year later and and, and God uses our conversation as part of His plan. 
Maybe God uses our conversation as part of His plan to harden a person's heart. Maybe God uses our conversation as part of His plan so that the person will believe there and then. See, our role is not to to question God or to doubt God or to ask God, what are you doing in this world? But to trust God because God knows what He is doing and He doesn't need us to tell Him what to do or to take the steering wheel from Him. The second thing which I think is very important is we must ask the question, who is our king? Who is our king? Because if God fulfills his promises to David to be king and keeps it, it is actually a miniature picture of what God does with Jesus Christ. You see, when we study Romans chapter 1, uh, next slide, remember what we read in the very first few verses. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What that means is, God has promised David to be king and he's kept that promise. Because of that, how much more do we know that when God says that Jesus, His Son, will be Christ and Lord over us for eternity, He will certainly keep it. So who is our King? Who is your King? Because if your King is the right King, Jesus Christ, then you are on the right side of history and the right side of the future. You know, you can be fabulously successful in your career, you could have riches beyond you know, anybody's imagination. You could have a great social life. You could have a great family, great children. But if Jesus is not your king, then you are like Abner. You are standing in front of the bus, which is God, who is going to run you over because you are standing against the plan of God. But you could be poor. You could be a failure in life. You could have no family, no friends. You could have nothing. But if Jesus is your king, then you are truly blessed. Because you are on the right side of history in the future. Because God has promised that Jesus will truly be the eternal king forever and ever. So as we look at today's passage, do not fear the future. Do not despair or doubt God. But if you have Jesus as your king, know that that future is secure for you and that you do not have to worry about anything because God will make Jesus king over the world and you will be part of his kingdom. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see how we are weak We are so limited in our knowledge. We do not know your mysterious ways. That dear father, in the beginning it seemed like such a hopeless situation for David. It seemed like such foolishness to stop in Hebron when the whole of Israel was open before him. But yet father, as we look at the reality of what happened in the end, 
Your plan was at work. Your will was being done. Your sovereignty was never in doubt. That you would use Abner's sinfulness, his ambition, his politics, even his rejection of your promises to bring about the kingdom to David. In the same way, may we learn the hard lesson to never doubt you, to always trust in you, to know that you are in control of all things and in your wisdom, all things will come to pass where Jesus will be king once and for all. And just help us to simply trust and obey and to rely on Jesus for we know he will be king and he will rule and every knee will bow before him. And we pray Give thanks for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.